0: Thanks, everybody. Okay, oh, good, we're up. Can we kill some of these spotlights so that the back can be uh, seen? All right, I'm going to tell you a story today about Michelangelo's David, but I'm going to start with a. Are you guys responding to the picture? Is that what that was? Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> We had, a, uh, we had a dinner last night with some students and toward the end of the time, I said something audacious, offensive, problematic, and right. And I'm gonna share it with you. It's, I feel like I'm giving you a shiny new toy to play with for the rest of the week. Um, art professors, don't hate me for this. I'm not a guy who likes to put things in order of the best ever. I don't have a best ever movie. I don't have a best ever song. Um, I love all art. I come to art with a posture of, I'm interested in engaging with whatever it is. However, I do believe that Michelangelo's David is the single greatest known artistic achievement by an individual artist in the history of humanity. So, Let me add a couple of caveats to that. I'm basing that on the difficulty of the medium itself, uh, the precision and elegance of the finished work, and also on the global response over time to that piece of work. And I will also say it is not my favorite piece of art. Um, I just said I don't have lists, but if I did have a list, this might crack the top ten, not the top five. It's not my favorite piece of work ever, but I do kind of have to stand in awe of it and say, I cannot come up with one that would be above it. And uh, so you can kick that around and prove me wrong later, but I'm gonna tell you the story of this sculpture now. I wanna use my time to tell a story and it's a true one. And I pray that it would be a kind of a parable for thinking about the power of creativity and community for the Christian. C.S. Lewis wrote, if we find in ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. So here's a question. Why do we travel halfway around the world to see works of art? Because it seems like an odd behavior, right? It is a lot of trouble, it's a lot of money, I think the reason is because we are hungry, all of us, for glory, uh, for a kind of perfection that we instinctually suspect exists but have yet to behold. And so my hope is in this short talk that we have together is to awaken a bit of that appetite by telling you the story of Michelangelo's David. So part one, the stone. The raw stone lay on its side in the back of the courtyard of the Florence Cathedral for decades. The church custodians and locals had nicknamed the monolith, the giant. In 1463, an Italian sculptor named Augustino de Duccio was commissioned by the Florence Cathedral, also known as the Duomo, to carve one of a series of 12 Old Testament figures to adorn the buttress of the Duomo's exterior. And the giant was to become David. The stone was hewn from the Frantascritti quarries in the Apuan Alps, just above Carrera, where it was transported from the Carrera region, first along the western coast of the Ligurian Sea to Pisa, and then up the Arno River to Florence. The journey from the mountain to the city took close to two years. In 1466, when the horses and the men finally carted the slab into the cathedral courtyard, people flocked to see it because no one had ever seen a single block of marble this big. By the way, the blocks of marble in this picture here are nowhere close to how big this thing was. It was an unfathomable, unfathomable fascination how this stone had come down from the mountains to rest in their midst. Human ingenuity and tenacity at its finest. It had been a thousand years since anyone had harvested a slab this size. And the stone became a fixture for the residents of Florence, a symbol of both incredible accomplishment and also a symbol of unmet potential. Two different sculptors made initial attempts at drawing forth a sculpture from that stone. But both attempts were quickly abandoned and the giant lay dormant for 33 years until in 1500, the stewards of the cathedral decided that they would raise the fallen colossus to its feet and search once more for a suitable craftsman to take on the project of carving David from the giant. In 1501, a 26-year-old sculptor who had begun to make a name for himself a few years earlier when at the age of 24, presented to Rome his Pietà, convinced the city officials that he should be hired to finish the sculpture that was started 11 years before he was born. And so on August 16th of 1501, the contract was awarded to Michelangelo. Part two, the sculptor. Michelangelo was born March 6, 1475 in the little town of Caprizi, just east of Florence. His father worked in banking and government, and while he was still very young, Michelangelo's mother took ill, and his father sent him to live with a nanny, whose husband was a stonecutter at their family's quarry in Arezzo. And so the boy grew up around hammers and chisels and marble. Michelangelo regarded sculpture as the pinnacle of art. Painting held little virtue for the young artist. In a letter to his friend, Michelangelo wrote, the more painting resembles sculpture, the more I like it. Sculpture is the torch by which painting is illuminated, and the difference between them is the difference between the sun and the moon. So the question is, did the man responsible for the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, with its thousand square meters of space, and over 300 individual figures, really despise painting this much? He did. Concerning this particular project, he wrote this is not my profession. I am wasting my time and all for nothing, may God help me. (laughs) That's a quote from Michelangelo about the Sistine Chapel ceiling. Michelangelo possessed unmatched ability. That's what we have to understand about him. His raw talent combined with his cultivated skill gave him the capability as an artist to render almost anything he wanted to make. If he wanted to make it, he could. His artistic preferences were matters of conviction to him. Greater than landscape and portraiture and all other subject matter was the human form itself. And above painting and etching and drawing and every other artistic technique was sculpture. And above clay and bronze and any other material which could be added to in the event of a mistake was the single unforgiving solid block of stone. And there in the courtyard of the Duomo, lying on its side for 40 years, lay the giant calling for the convergence Of all three of those things, a sculpture in the human form from a single block of marble. Part three, the shepherd. David is perhaps the most ubiquitous character in the Old Testament. Everybody knows at least part of his story. Before David had risen to any level of fame, his brothers went off to war. Israel's King Saul and his army were dug in in the valley of Elah in the hill country of Judah and across the valley were the Philistines clanking their spears and shields in the hopes that they might bait Saul's army into allowing their anger to draw them out into the killing fields. And every day their strongest, biggest warrior would call out across the valley for someone, anyone, to step forward to fight him. His name was Goliath of Gath and he stood nine feet, nine inches tall and he was covered head to toe in bronze armor, his male coat looking like the scales of a serpent shimmering in the sun and he carried a javelin on his back and a spear in one hand and a sword in the other. He was a monolith of a figure, impenetrable as stone and every day Goliath would call out Why have you come out for battle if you won't fight? Let's settle this man to man. Send over the best you've got. Let him come down to me and the winner takes all. And Saul and his leaders and his army could not produce one single soldier who stood a chance against the giant. He was the perfect warrior. And one day... David came to the valley to bring supplies to his brothers, and he saw the giant step into the sun, shimmering bronze. And Goliath resumed his taunt Who will you send to fight me? Anyone? No one? Cowards? And David watched as his countrymen shrunk back in fear, and he could tell they had no fight in them at all, and this offended him. They were not just any army. They were the heirs of the Exodus. They were the tribes who defeated Canaan and Edom and Moab. Egypt was swallowed in the sea behind them, and Jericho fell before them. They were not just some random clan. They were God's chosen people, and now they would shrink in fear over the taunts of one man. David said to Saul, listen, king. You don't need to keep doing this. I'll go fight that giant. And Saul was incredulous. You can't fight him. You're just a boy. And David said, I know how to handle this. When I was keeping watch over my father's herds, a lion came to snatch one away and I went after him and I struck him and I delivered the lamb from his mouth. And when that lion turned on me, I grabbed him by his beard and I struck him again and I killed him with my knife. And this giant across the valley, He's going to end up like that lion. He defied the armies of the living God, and the Lord will deliver him to me. Saul recognized that the boy meant every word. And without a better plan, he said, well, okay, go then. May the Lord be with you. And then he dug out his best armor and weaponry. You know the story. And he began to dress David in his coat of mail, and then the king handed David his sword. And David said, this is not how I'm going to do it. So he put it all down and he picked up his staff and he gathered five smooth stones from the brook of Elah. And he put, them. did this just die on me? What's going on here? Okay, we need to get that back. up. Um, five smooth stones from the brook of Elah and he put them in his pouch and he grabbed his sling and he walked to face the giant. And Goliath regarded the boy for a moment and he laughed and he said, Really? You think you can chase me away with sticks and some rocks like I'm a dog? Come after me if you want, but know this I will feed your flesh to the birds and the jackals if you do. And David answered, You come at me with your javelin and spear and sword, but I come at you in the name of the Lord God you have defied. And before this day is over, that same God will deliver you over to me and I will strike you down and I will cut off your head. You and your entire army will perish and every one of you will meet the fate of the birds and the jackals. And then all the earth will know that there is a God over Israel who doesn't need a giant sword or spear. This battle belongs to him and Goliath stood to his feet and began to make his way toward David. Now, stop. Part four, the sculpture. This was the moment that Michelangelo captured. David started approaching his foe. It's working up there, right? Okay, I'm having issues down here with my laptop. I'm going to trust. That's what I'm going to do. Trust. David started approaching his foe. In the story, it's all in there. It's in his posture. It's in his hands. It's in his sling. It's in his vulnerability, in his eyes. The sling and the stone signal to us that David is looking at Goliath, who is about to die. And the look in David's eyes tells us that he has no doubt. The marble... apologize, guys, I'm having issues that I do not want to be having right now.
1: All right. All right. Put this
0: the back. What's that? Okay. this its the back and go left or right with it. Okay. Will it, is it, is it going to... Wait, I think we're back. Okay. What's that? So if you just this at the back. Okay. Oh, okay, okay, good, good, good. good. Okay. Thanks, okay. The marble, what are we at now? Okay. Um, Nope, gotta go back, sorry. Oh, I know, okay. like I said, like I said, the greatest single artistic achievement in the known history of humanity by an individual artist. This was the moment. The marble looks soft and smooth like flesh, right? The shepherd is at the same time vulnerable in his nakedness and also imposing in his size, standing just over 13 feet tall. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm having trouble understanding what I'm supposed to be doing here. Okay. (laughs) David is tense and angry. Guys, I'm about to abandon the slides here. Okay, I'm trying. (laughs) I'm, I'm doing that. Okay. It's not working. Okay. All right. Let me look and see how many slides I've got left to go here. Can you all there in the back just kind of toggle through these as I talk? Okay, thank you. Um, The marble looks soft and smooth like flesh. The shepherd is at the same time vulnerable in his nakedness and also imposing in his size, standing over 13 feet tall. David is tense and angry and ready to move. Michelangelo captures him at the peak of his focus. The warrior is alert, but calm. He is equipped, but patient. He is daring, but confident. He stands in a way that conveys motion. Can we skip to a slide that has his stance, his legs? Um, Let's keep going. There you go. He stands in a way that conveys motion, giving his posture a sense of life. He's naked and defenseless. It's a detail that's not in the pages of Scripture, but it is included to heighten for us the viewer's grasp of how vulnerable he was against this unseen foe. And though he is naked, he is anything but weak. The determination on his face and the weapon in his hands convey not only strength, but confidence that the victory is his. This was not a battle against flesh and blood. His right hand, which we should see in it. Let's get to his right hand. I love this picture. There you go. His right hand holds the grip of the sling. His left hand, which is the next slide, holds the pocket. The next picture shows that the sling is draped across his back, which means it's hidden from Goliath, emphasizing that David's victory was one of cleverness not of brute strength. His approach was sophisticated and elegant. Goliath's sword and javelin and muscles and spear all depended on close to mid-range combat, but David's sling was the long-range weapon. A skilled slinger could take down an opponent armed with swords and spears and javelins without ever coming into reach of his enemy's weapons. What's more, David believed that God himself would guide the stone Goliath would never even touch him. I mean, the story is perfect. It's a perfect enemy. It's a perfect youth. It's a perfect cast of a lethal stone. It's a perfect ending. And Michelangelo fit it all into a perfect statue of a perfect hero. Part five we work with what we're given. No one in this life is perfect. No one. And we live in a world of limits. And we all run up against them and we all have them. If you're like me, you wish this wasn't the case and you find the whole business of limits hard to accept, but they are a fact of life. And not only are they they a fact of life, they're part of God's design. One of the beauties I see in this part of God's design is that our limits and our need for others end up producing results, helpful and beautiful and unexpected results, that none of us on our own would have known how to create or even thought to create. And the story behind how Michelangelo's David came to be helps us see this. This statue began with limits. Michelangelo's statue would be limited to what the stone could accommodate. When he began, he had to adapt to the attempts of two other prior sculptors whose creative choices and technical mistakes would determine, at least to a degree, how David would have to stand. Can we look at how he's standing? There we go. The stance would affect everything about the end result, not only of the composition of the piece, but also of the structural integrity of the piece. Michelangelo was given a block of marble that others had a hand in shaping. And I ask you, is this not a metaphor for life? We work with what we're given. And we live in a world of limits. How different would Michelangelo's David have been if he began with a virgin stone? What artistic choices would he have made otherwise? Would that sculpture be as beloved as the one we have been given? Michelangelo chipped away at the stone set before him. He had to accommodate the vision of other sculptors and the failures of other sculptors. And he had to accommodate the dimensions handed down by the stonemasons who first hewed the marble from the Tuscan Alps. And he also had to accommodate the written word of Scripture because the story of David was not his to invent. And these constraints, all of them, played a role in drawing from that stone the shepherd that he had read about and imagined. Now, some of those choices had already been made for him. But had they not been, we would not have Michelangelo's David. We would have something else. But that's not what happened. And so we have David. I cannot think of a single thing in my life that doesn't bear the touch of others. And you can't either. I mean, of course, we wish some of those chisel marks never happened, you know? The ones that draw from us a cry for mercy, the ones that kindle a hunger for the renewal of all things. But other chisel marks have been necessary to give us eyes to behold truth and beauty and goodness that we would not have otherwise known. Living with limits is one of the ways that we enter into beauty that we would not have otherwise seen, good works that we would not have otherwise chosen, relationships that we would not have treasured. I mean, you all live on the top of a mountain. You have a geographical limit to your friendships right now. And it's beautiful. For the Christian, accepting our limits is one of the ways we are shaped to fit together as living stones in the body of Christ. As much as our strengths are a gift to the church, friends, so are our limitations. Part six, seeking perfection in a world that is wasting away. There are cracks in David's ankles. For over 500 years, nearly 2,000 pounds of marble have been pushing down on them. And yet he stands. For centuries of sun and rain and tremors of thunder and more than a few attacks by vandals, David stands. But David stands on a bit of a tilt adding torque to the pressure that his weight puts on those tiny fissures. And in almost immeasurable ways, those fractures are growing, and they're working their way up his legs, and this deterioration cannot be reversed. Florence, where David stands, sits near active fault lines, which send tremors through the city. As the city develop, construction equipment continually shakes the earth as it chips and pounds away at the stone beneath. And as daily queues of tourists form lines outside of the academy, the footsteps of a million pilgrims per year from all over the world create almost immeasurable but near-constant seismic activity around the statue's base. And one day, David will fall. In all likelihood, he will ironically be taken down by a stone, not by the force of a stone flung at him, but by the limitations of the very stone from which he is carved. He will collapse under his own weight because of his own flaws one of the many fractures will cause a catastrophic failure in the compressive integrity of the marble and the weight of his upper body will begin to shift and pressure and torque and momentum will finish the job and because of the calcite quality of marble, when he lands, parts of him will practically just explode. This world, which is wasting away, is utterly indifferent to that. It is utterly indifferent to preserving the finest art that its inhabitants can produce. The stone that the quarrymen hewed from the mountain was filled with all kinds of imperfections before the first tap of the first sculptor's hammer and chisel. And though the marble was capable of accommodating the physical toll of thousands of taps, from the sculptor's tools. And even though it has managed to stand for over 500 years, supporting its own weight in all kinds of conditions, David is made of a material that is perishing. And this reality was present from the beginning. And yet, we flock to see him. Standing there in all his glory, the most perfect work of art ever achieved by any one of us says me. I came across a detail in my research that I can't seem to shake. There's a gloss on David's exterior. And the gloss of David's exterior is in part human skin. For 500 years, the patina Covering David's body has been composed of a combination of Florentine dust and the detritus of a hundred million tourists coughing and shuffling before him, shedding their skin to give him his. We have added to Michelangelo's work, polishing him smooth by our very presence. We who bear the image of God have taken this man of stone and we have given him a dusting of flesh. And we save our vacation days and we plan our itineraries and we make our way across oceans and over mountains and through cities and down long stretches of highway that span the countryside to take our place in line to catch a glimpse of the deeper glory that we know we were made for. We go to the Louvre in Paris, and the Met in New York City, and the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, and the Academy in Florence, and we go to the Grand Canyon of the American West, and the Giant's Causeway of Northern Ireland, and the forests of East Asia and the islands of the South Pacific. And we go to a pizza place in Brooklyn and a pub in Oxford and a vineyard in the Sonoma Valley and a cafe in Paris. Why? All to join we who are perishing to something eternal. All to get closer to glory. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be here at Covenant College this week. For the way that you work in the lives of students here. The way that you have used students here to work in my life this week. I thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for the way that you have uh, made us to be people who uh, have an appetite to create. uh, And in the process of doing, end up giving the world things like Van Gogh's Red Vineyard, and Michelangelo's David, and Rembrandt's Storm on the Sea of Galilee, and so many other pieces of work, the work that comes out of this college. Father, we ask that you would continue to help us uh, condition and train the the muscle of our imaginations, that you would give us a desire to sustain thoughts longer than we might, uh, that you would give us the humility to wonder about things that we don't know, which requires humility because we then have to acknowledge things that we don't know. And so Lord, help us to do that. Thank you for the gospel being true. Uh, And uh, we give you glory and praise for your your kindness to us. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.